Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, a remedial course in baseball stats and proud member of the Pitcher List Podcast Network. I'm your host and expert layman, Matt Goodwin, and I am joined, as always, by your fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. On this episode, we will discuss the numbers under the hood of some early season performances, whether analytics takes away from the enjoyment of the game, players including Tyler McGill, Nestor Cortez, Matt Brash, Kyle Tucker, Andrew Vaughn, and so many more. But before we get to all of that, Alexander, how you doing? Matt, it is... It is going well today. Uh, good to hear from you. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear that things are, are going well. Uh, what, what, do we have an update on the car situation? Uh, no. No? Still? <laughs> to the mm, shop, it's Not fine. good. That's the very short answer. Yeah. That's not uh, going to be much of a discussion starter then. Yeah, no, I, I dropped it off. Maybe it'll be fixed next week. Uh, I've learned a whole lot, I should say, about uh, how to really efficiently take two buses and a train to work. I think that's the real <laughs> update here. Um, well, I'll... I guess that's a silver lining, right? That's yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, the trains have been a mess here in DC over the past. It, it's not a year yet, but it's been a long time since they've been quite right. Because there's like a, some new ones that were out um, because their um, axles weren't working. I hear that's important for trains. They tell mm, me it's important yeah. for trains, so they pulled all them, and they've just been using the old trains, which is like half of the ones they have. So the wait times have been terrible. But the oh, good boy. news is, if you take a bus to the train, you can get like an infinite number of buses that come by uh, and my wait times to transfer have been like nearly zero basically throughout so i've managed to turn what was if i take two trains to work and then a bus an hour and a half down to about an hour and five minutes and i'm really proud of that yeah there you go well that's and that's there and back right so that's almost an hour a day uh well it's fast math no because you do it differently coming home i take an uber (laughs) there you go yeah that's, that's what i'm saying that's what i'm talking about I, I only know I would do it. <laughs> I only trust the other people's insurance to reimburse me for one Uber a day because, you know, the risk of paying $50 a day in Ubers is just too high uh, for mm. me to deal with. So I'm not doing that. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Well, I hope that that situation resolves itself very, very soon for you. That is that is an annoying situation. Uh, so I want to start off today by talking about something that where the, the answer may seem obvious, given that the name of our podcast is Dugout Study Hall, and we're talking about metrics and math all the time. Uh, but I do think this is a, an important conversation to have because it comes up every year and it comes up all the time and different talking heads have very different points of view on this. So I'm going to ask you to answer this question, and then I'm going to ask you to answer it again. Uh, taking the other point of view. So uh, you're going to have to kind of put on your your old school, high school debate cap here where you have to be able to argue both for and against uh, the thing that, that you truly believe in yourself. And that's about analytics impact on the game itself and whether it makes it better. Uh, did the analytics actually hurt the overall enjoyment, the on-field product? Um, maybe they, they help teams win more games but does that help draw more fans in so that's the question for what we're going to start with do analytics take away from the enjoyment of the game alexander so i'm going to start with i think the best case for the point of view that i don't as strongly agree with uh which is i would note definitely not the case that you're going to hear from a lot of stupid cranks online uh, so I'm going to do their job for them. And because they don't listen to this podcast, they won't regurgitate anything I say. Um, I often think about what like some of the most influential pieces of media that I've consumed about baseball are. And I think like in the pantheon of like the top five is this podcast from the uh, Ringer Baseball Show that came out uh, last year, a couple weeks into maybe like uh, a month into the start of the season. Uh, and yeah, it's. Uh, April 30th last year is called pitchers are lapping hitters. It's time to do something. Uh, And they were basically making the argument that we've gotten so good at turning pitchers into superhuman weapons that can throw 95 mile an hour sliders that are impossible to hit that the game of baseball is just less fun because nothing happens anymore. Um, And I think that is an extremely convincing, well thought out analytically minded argument about why analytics are bad. Um, from like a aesthetic value-based point of view. Um, I do think that the most fun moments in baseball happen when there is a runner on second or third, and there are far fewer moments when a runner is on second or third, when the game is built to strike everybody out. Um, Right, right. And 
I do think that things need be done to make strikeouts happen less often. Now, the problem, I think, with the people who make a similarly, like, like an argument against the same enemy, they're not making similar arguments, right? They're saying analytics bad, right? We need to get back to the good old days, something, something, Tony Gwynn, something, something, (laughs) whatever. Um, I don't know. I wasn't alive then. Um, Is that like, they basically say that players just need to go the other way or whatever it is. It it ignores the fact that one pitchers are superhuman weapons and it's really hard to do that. And like two, the way the incentives work, as long as the game basically still like is using the same sorts of risk reward systems. Like if you make it so that, the ball is like dejuiced. Like that doesn't affect Joey Gallo as much as it affects DJ LeMahieu. Um, yeah, and right, like right. It, it actually hurts the guys you want to exist more, and it encourages pitchers to continue to be that sort of. You can have some fly balls and some strikeouts and some walks, and I'm not going to let you have singles because I'm not pitching to contact in the middle of the zone. Like that's just that's the game that we're playing right if fly yeah. balls aren't as dangerous you either need to be able to hit them a thousand feet or not hit them <laughs> at all and a thousand feet is much easier to produce talent wise so like the argument there is that your team should still be doing it but aesthetically from our enjoyment point of view uh it's bad and i think i'm comfortable having that conversation because I'm also comfortable saying, yeah, so we should have more runners on second base and extra innings because that makes baseball yeah. more fun. When you do <laughs> right. that, you just get a whole lot of angry replies. And please send them to me. Uh, you're wrong. The runner on second rule rocks. Um, the other argument, though, and it, I know it's central flaw. The argument that I actually believe is like analytics are good because winning baseball games is fun and they help you win more baseball games. Uh, the problem with that. I will admit is that like it also kind of assumes that like you don't ruin the aesthetics along the way because people are making choices that adjust in good faith like you can do analytics and like walk and chew gum about baseball being fun and interesting right solving problems by being smart doesn't stop happening like if people hate the that aesthetics if you just have like a commissioner and roles committees who are able to kind of like trim things along to make things still be fun Plenty of games get updated in real life all the time um, to like have balances and stuff like that. That is like the central feature of like online video games is that like if there is like a certain part of the meta that is like too good and makes the game less fun, they change things. We do that yeah. in baseball all the time, by the way. Just it's more on like a decades long scale than yeah, on, like a yeah. couple weeks long. Move a little scale. more more at a glacial pace in in baseball. I think it, it it's one of the the downsides of it being such a, a game steeped in tradition is that's where it works against against you that people don't like change in baseball, but yet that change is what helps kind of find that normalization that that responds to um the the adaptations because the Actually, the change you're talking about is rules based, but players are changing everything they mm-hmm. do all the mm-hmm. time. They're changing it in game to be responsive to what the other team has changed to get them out a little bit more. And that's that cat and mouse thing that most people really enjoy. And then they don't like that idea when it comes to like the macro rules changes or banning shifts or whatever the case may be, the three true outcome situation. So let me let me ask you this. I'm going to. Uh, take the same concept and ask you one more question about it. Uh, did the analytics that uh, got brought into New York ruin the New York Yankees? Were they never not ruined? <laughs> well, it depends upon which decade you're talking about. The The, the uh, thing that ruined the Yankees uh, is that uh, they stopped spending a billion dollars a year on their lineup and they let everyone catch up. That's what ruined the Yankees. I, I don't think that's like, I don't think you can like argue against that in even an ounce of good faith. Like that hasn't been the problem. I'm going to try. So okay, like let's let's look at the at this way. Why would they? And they've made some adjustments this year, which which I acknowledge, bringing in guys like Gallo. But why would you build a team that is kind of antithetical to the strengths of your park if you're not just being swayed by the numbers on the page? 
uh, I think your argument gives away the fact that it's not correct when you say that the numbers should say based on the dimensions of the park that we should do something different. Uh, the Yankees are, I would say, pretty good at a lot of analytical e things, especially the pitching side. Their pitching development is great. Um, their problem is that a guy named Hal Steinbrenner t- tells him to stop spending money, and that's basically it. Like the reason that they have the team that they have constructed, they've traded for like so many of these players rather than signing them in free agency. They've been looking for values everywhere. Yeah. I think that there are two things we should separate when we say analytics, really. Uh, and there, on one side, there is uh, let's do things to help us win more games. The other side is so that we don't have to spend money instead, right? The whole money ball, whatever, like it's lack of money ball. It, it, it was kind yeah. of what it was born out of, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's sure. The, uh, John Fisher's and his family just have never wanted to spend an, a single dime on the A's. And have instead preferred to do anything else with their money. Um, the Yankees caught wind of the fact that they could try to do that too. And so they're pocketing the hundreds of millions they make after they like they print like six, seven hundred million dollars a year. They spend two hundred million on payroll. They could comfortably spend a hundred million more. Um, yeah. That's it. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. I, yeah. I'm, and, and by no means, uh, you can send me the tweets if you want, but uh, am I saying that the Yankees are a poorly run organization? I'm just trying to synthesize some of the things that I've been seeing other people talk about. Yeah, I think there's actually been a good like number of things I've seen online or like that the results on the field have set, like probably prompted us to want to talk about in this early season that do make some of these conversations more interesting. There's been offense down issues. The Yankees just dropped two of three against the Orioles and like got shut out in one of those games against, I can't even remember who it was because it was someone so <laughs> no Like that's the whole point. Yeah. No, but, Offense has been down. There's questions of mar- question marks about the ball again. I'd like yeah. some more data on that. Like, I'm not even willing to start running weird savant queries to like figure out if the offense is down because I want a few more days of stuff still. But like, uh, it doesn't look great. Um, and you know, like beyond that, a lot of the teams that have the crankiest fan bases are some of the teams that have kind of borne the brunt of that. So you're gonna hear these questions again when that happens, and. I, I think to answer them, you necessarily have to try to think these stuff matters. But so if you if you've built a team based on the numbers that that are three true outcome teams, and then the ball is, um, what's the opposite of juiced? D, are we saying dejuiced, unjuiced? Yeah, dejuiced. Lack gate. of juice. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I know that your point earlier it was like that, that's not going to hurt the Joey Gallows as as much as it's going to hurt the DJ LeMahieu's or the Kevin Vigios of when he was good. Um peace. overall like on a bell curve you would think that even Joey Gallo is going to suffer somewhat and if you if he suffers a little bit and Aaron Judge suffers a little bit and Stanton suffers a little bit even though they hit the ball a ton and it's not huge over the course of a season that might have some impact. And then you look at all the other people who are on the team who are more, more uh, greatly impacted by that. Um, if you've built your team that way, as opposed to a team that might be able to put the ball in play and be a little bit more responsive and adaptive to a ball that's not going as far. Is there anything in there? I, I'm, again, I'm just thinking of this on the fly of playing devil's advocate a little bit. Is it possible that that actually hurts a, a power first team uh, to the to the nth? Like the Yankees are like to the to the nth degree with that, right? I should um, note this is actually I ran this the other day. I need to double check it, and I'm not going to do it while I'm sitting here in front of my computer, but I can later. This year's Yankees were on pace to have the second highest hard contact rate of any season in the Statcast era, which is obviously a bunch of nonsense because it had been like eight games or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> right, like, sure. Like, but so, like, who cares? But, like, they are, and this is including strikeouts and walks and all that stuff. It's just how much on a pure pay at PA basis that isn't just mash ball and three true outcomes. This is how much do we do it, period. They were do- hitting the ball hard more often than anyone else ever had. And the results just hadn't come because of some bad luck, but not even like bad base running luck. Like, seems like D juice. But if everyone else is also playing with the same D juice ball, if they're hitting it 15 feet beyond the fence instead of 50, 
it's still a home run. If the other people are hitting it into a glove instead of five feet beyond the fence, they're hurt more. Or, you know, you get more lazy fly balls that are easy to field if you're a contact-oriented team. I, I think the thing that we always freak out about with the Yankees is that if they haven't won all of their games, it's a crime. Uh, whereas yeah. if anyone else has won just most <laughs> of their games, it's a success. Um, and that's that's what it's come down to. Well, it's, it very well could just far. be that there's much more attention on the New York Yankees than there are on other teams. Uh, but they do seem to be and and have been uh, kind of the the poster franchise for this this kind of prototype of a player. Uh, so we don't have to belabor the point. I think yeah. I think we've I talked say, about it. I, I would prefer them if I want to like fit, if I want to like put a last stamp on the point, I would prefer the Yankees build to the insert any other team that hits the ball kind of hard and doesn't strike out a lot. Uh, I would prefer the way that they are running in a deep juice ball world because uh, the power is not going to drop as much for them. The home run revolution of the past 10 years or whatever has mostly been dudes who can't hit the ball hard, suddenly hitting, suddenly hitting home runs. So, yeah, that's yeah. my dumb okay. take. I'll, 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 I'll call it dumb. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let's move into our number of the week segment. And uh, for this episode, I am not going to give you a number, but rather ask you to talk about the metrics that make sense when we are trying to early in the season uh, buy or sell uh, players. And in this installment, we're going to focus specifically on pitchers. And we're going to talk about a handful of guys who have shown up and been very good so far. Obviously, a very small sample size when you're talking about pitchers. uh, It's even harder because they obviously only throw every five days or so. Um, But if we're looking at people like uh, Nestor Cortez, even, or uh, Matt Brash, there was a little bit of uh, hype in some places on some of these guys, maybe less so on others. But when we are looking at, is this somebody who's going to sustain? Is this somebody I should buy into? Is this somebody I should either pick up or trade for? Um, what are the those numbers under the hood that are going to help us make that decision about the, the legitimacy of what they're able to do? So um, as of today, uh, this is, again, Tuesday. So there's going to be a couple more people whatever yes 162 uh baseball players have started a game which sounds about right roughly five ish throw in a couple more times uh 30 teams um and i know this because i just pulled a savant query for the number that i've been tracking with most interest to try to actually figure out if i should be in on a guy so far which is uh if you listen to our pitch con episode that whiffs per that i said was like the thing that i had found was most likely to tell you who's going to strike people out going forward within one or two starts. It's an imperfect test that I'd run them, but I've been curious and wanted to try it out in real life and see how that worked. I want to give you got some people, I said uh, 162. So people who are in the top 32, the top 20% that were essentially afterthoughts at some point you know in your 12 team format might have been on your bench or below and 15 teams are guys that you were sort of interested in so here's some guys at 31 you have kyle wright he's getting about uh 0.57 whiffs against the average batter uh so that means like you know you're gonna get a whiff every other batter that doesn't seem like it's a whole lot you don't strike that many people out a good strikeout rate is like 25 to 30 percent so if you can get a foul and some called strikes, being able to reliably get just one whiff against every other batter is pretty good. He's 31st. Um, other people who, as I'm going to keep taking up this list, Joe Ryan, who's looked really sharp so far, is at uh, 0.65. He's in 23rd. Um, Nestor Cortez is 18th, 0.68. Uh, Shane McClanahan, who has looked way better this year, just noted this is a tracking thing, uh, 0.71. He's 14th. Hunter Green. Uh, looking excellent so far when he can like put a ball anywhere near the strike zone and it doesn't get hit into play. He's actually had some issues with that, but that's a whole other conversation. 0.71, 12th, 13th place. Ty Lord McGill is 11th on this list. <laughs> um, and then you see all the, like the usual aspects suspects are actually good in between these. Uh, Andrew Heaney is fifth so far and Jesus Lazardo is second. 
There is no minimum pitch requirement. This is literally you in doubt, you tried. First was Taiwan Walker. He faced nine batters. It's really funny to me. <laughs> but like everyone else that I didn't include is like Kershaw, Rodon, Giolito in his very short start. Hope he's back and as at, as good as he was. Alec Manoa is up there. Um, Pablo Lopez, Corbin Burns, all of the ex- all of the people who've been good. Shohei Otani. Right? These are all people who have been really excellent. They've been getting a lot of whiffs. Their results have been good. We would expect them to be good going forward. So a lot of these guys who've looked really good have been getting whiffs. That's really all it comes down to. I don't care about anything else all that much. I've tracked so, some of the other stuff to see if they've been bad, and we haven't noticed it, like hard contact stuff. But this is the one number that right now I even kind of care about for breakouts. Oh, so just to clarify, Alexander, you're you're talking about whiffs per PA, not just a whiff percentage or a strikeout percentage. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So let me... Let me like break those out a little bit here. So like with rate, whenever you just call something rate, I always get annoyed if it's like not clear. So I want to make sure I can like spell that out. With rate typically is used to describe um, the percentage of swings that you produce that miss. Uh, so how often you whiff with when you strike or when you swing, uh, which is uh, kind of a weird number because not all pitches induce swings as often as each other. Like if you're right. like throwing a changeup or a curveball, it's like always going to be in the dirt. Yeah, it's going to be hard to hit, but like probably a ball a lot too. So yeah, that's yeah. kind of like a a good when it works, how how does it work sort of number. Uh, that I generally disregard other than kind of like for flavor and descriptiveness for people's stuff. Uh, if your rate is really bad on a pitch, that's usually meaningful, but like not the other way around necessarily. Um, swinging strike rate is whiffs per pitch um which is generally pretty useful but you get some sort of like noise from it uh basically the people who um pitch to contact won't have really high swinging strike rates uh but like it breaks the model uh like if you have like don't pitch to contact and your swinging strike rates can often be a little bit higher because like people actually swing later on in counts whereas they don't swing yeah, early yeah. in counts so like it's a good ish thing i've just found that if you want to predict strikeouts having the same denominator as strikeouts plate appearances tends to have a little bit less noise even than that uh and, and just like those little tiny things you can do to get fair comparisons help swing a strike rate is not a terrible number to look at but like it just has some reasons why it won't perfectly work um as a result i tend to prefer um I tend to prefer whiffs per batter. Basically, the effect is if you're okay at getting swinging strikes, but like when you don't get a swinging strike, is it a ball or is it in play? That difference can really matter for how often you get strikeouts. And because like we're trying to predict strikeout rate, that's kind of where I'm going at. I will note this metric can be slightly biased in front of people like, let's say, Matt Brash, who uh, kind of had a thing where he took a no hitter into the fifth, but like walked four batters and like. Yeah, not yeah, yeah. The prettiest untouchable outing, but his stuff is <laughs> nasty. Um, and he's gonna strike a lot of people out, which we care about in fantasy, and does lead to more reliable results quicker. I care much more about taking chances on those guys early because we're gonna have a better idea of whether or not their version of success is like who they are than the guys who like pitch more to contact because we're not going to be able to know if they're like actually good at that skill for a lot longer so here we are three weeks in the year i do not really want to gamble on guys who rely on umpires or batters to do their job for them i sure. know what Matt brash's path to victory looks like and it does not involve um either the umpire or the other batter helping them out or their defense helping them out all that much it's just throw a ball person misses onto the next one uh, sure. And if they don't swing yeah. at all, it might be onto the next one the other way around. Well, it's um, more controllable, right? It, that's right. They have uh, they're in the driver's seat in terms of their ability to do that because of their stuff, rather than releasing the ball and then hoping for a, a good outcome because it was a called striker or the batter didn't do much with it. Yeah, I I should note I'm not pulling these as directly because I don't have like a stuff algorithm. But like the stuff plus numbers are really good on a lot of these guys too, and are also worth yeah. talking about. I yeah. I just like to make sure that I have a, like a check on that sort of stuff that's different, so that like I I know how it works. Those black box stats I feel like can be a little bit weird to explain to people. So I want like a more 
um, manual, even if I have to run a search through Savant, like I want a more manual stat that I can kind of reference back to that's outcomes based, uh, just as like a, you know, checking your work. I trust the people who run these stuff models. Uh, they're, they're smart people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Um, okay. We have talked a little bit about looking at the metrics and kind of under the hood at what's been going on in these first few weeks to to try and make sense of things, not just hey, the, the the results have been good, but why have the results been good? Or vice versa, I suppose is fair. And I want to talk more about that with our central question, which is kind of geared around like what would be surprising or maybe not surprising if we were to come back on May 31st and look at what we're about to talk about um, and, and what numbers kind of point us in that direction. So that's, that's kind of what we're going to use for the, the crux of the episode. But before we get to that, we are going to take a very short break. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show and we are back. So, Alexander, uh, we're going to try and do this, I guess, not really a game so much as just kind of a, a goofy premise. But um, based on what's happened already, let's look at some ser- scenarios in, in terms of like, would you be shocked if on May 31st, Andrew Vaughn is in the minor leagues kind of a thing? And and why? Why do we think that that uh, would be? possibly be the case or is would it be absolutely shocking because of the numbers so um let's start with andrew vaughn i think there's a lot we can say about him so uh, i'll let you start where you want to start with him i like that you really led with like the goofiest version of this not like the (laughs) andrew vaughn is batting second for the white Sox, which i think would be like what everyone wishes were the case yeah you just led with the other clickbait version of this we're trying to generate like verbal clickbait here because (laughs) the bounds on these things the most extreme ish expectation or whatever i think are the fun ways to analyze this what's the what's the ceiling or the floor is way more fun than what's the middle uh right so with andrew vaughn i like that we can leave with him also because you can basically do all of these scenarios because of how completely disconnected reality has been from his playing time reality Um, right there's this guy named Tony Larusa involved, and I don't know if um, Andrew Vaughn like is being blackmailed by him or like owes him money or what the deal is. But the the lack of consistent playing time for him, sure, he's right-handed, which puts you on the small side of platoons if you're not playing full time. His defense has not made him a, like a locked-in full-time player, but like come on (laughs) yeah i don't have a better way to say it than that which is why i think we need to be able to like have some sort of like let's look at what's happened so far and be realistic about how good he's been and whether our frustration is realistic before we make some would it be crazy if sort of situations so So, look under the hood then what are what are those numbers that that would lead you to your conclusions what are the things about what he's actually doing and controlling um that would say like this is just lucky and he's he's had good output because the ball just happened to go where the defense wasn't or or what is it that he's doing that is very encouraging that this is sustainable and he absolutely is going to force uh his, his way into the lineup more even if Tony the russa wants to be stodgy and old and weird well i want to before I say the really ridiculous thing here, uh, just track some fun stuff about him, like long term. We've we've brought him up a couple times because he's like uh, one of my favorite. He adjusted the numbers changed. Look at rolling charts, guys. He started out with a high twenty strikeout rate and forces like rates into the like mid teens for a strikeout rate. Basically, going from figuring out how to go from like a low minors to like no high minors to major league pitching successfully. 
beautiful transition, absolutely kind of what you'd hope for from like a top three pick. The net result was a kind of average season, but like every possible thing that you could hope kind of like got figured out, got figured out. I very much continue to believe in his potential. What's he doing this year? He's striking out 16% of the time. His 8% walk rate, like it's pretty good. Not great, but like it's pretty good, I guess. Um, So yeah, that's stuff that's like stable quickly. Great. Uh, Andrew Vaughn also has the second highest hard contact rate in baseball right now. Mm. He has hit the ball hard in 12 of his 25 plate appearances. That's insane. <laughs> Wait, no, no, I don't know. Yeah, that's it. 12 of his that's 25. That's sustainable, but a good sign. <laughs> he, the, the crime here is that it's been 25 plate appearances. Uh, but yeah, yeah, he's done right. everything you could ask of him to just an absurd, absurd degree. I'm, I looked this up this morning, so I knew that. Uh, I gotta. I'm gonna pull it up again because I wanted. To, I wanted to see who was first, uh, and because I will probably cite this again because we're realistic. But like, that's insane. Like this guy was sitting in the the low 30s, which is still good last year. Like he was legitimately effective, and we would believe what he was doing. But yeah, you sit the minimum of 25 plate appearances. He's second uh, behind. Please load, uh, Marcelo Zuna. Uh, Okay, an absolutely insane thing. Third, Nick Madrigal. I have no explanation for that. I can't. I can't. I don't know what's happening there. But yeah, he has well, 16 hard hit batted balls. The cautionary tale of small sample sizes right there. But <laughs> maybe it uh, is. That's yeah. okay. Um, I I got to figure out what they're feeding Nick Madrigal. Because uh, yeah. that's really good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, I would not expect that from him. But yeah, no, Vaughn is basically doing all the things we'd expect him to do except play every day which is what you would expect that a team that drafted him believes in him and promoted him quickly and wants to get production out of him would do and instead oh yes yeah so i i had on here like would you be surprised if on may 31st uh vaughn is starting every day no Uh, i i'd be zero percent shocked um i would be jokingly shocked because tony lewis is involved but his play merits that uh, so yeah, no, I wouldn't right. be shocked at all. Yeah, and whether that's Tony Larusa coming around or or somebody else calling the shots, there doesn't seem like it would be shocking. What about seriously the 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 kind of jokey thing that I said? But Vaughn is in the minors. I really doubt it. In that, like, I don't think they could reasonably do it. And also, their way that he, they've messed with him doesn't seem to include that as a plan. They seem to think that he is a major league piece whatever just that means mean to play every day yeah no i yeah. would be very surprised if he was in the minors i think he's he's here to stay it's just very silly that he's not getting the playing time now here's one that i think is very interesting would it surprise you if on may 31st vaughn has been traded away from the chicago white Sox? i would be shocked but i'd be really happy uh i think the white Sox are a great off of its environment for him I just really want him to play every day and I'm kind of annoyed enough with them that I would cheer for the move. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, all of the White Sox fans that I follow on Twitter who are also really annoyed with this and don't want that to be the way this gets sorted out. I don't think it'll happen. That's why I said I'd be shocked. Like, what are you going to trade him for that would be a fair return? Uh, There was was something that was on, I think, MLB trade rumors not that long ago, maybe a little over a week ago about the, the A's and some pitching. Um, so I'll ask this question. It doesn't have to be a, a, a true, like, I don't want to get into speculation about trades. Like that's, that is what it is, but would Andrew Vaughn be more valuable on May 31st as a member of the Chicago white Sox or as a member of the Oakland athletics in fantasy? I think uh, this year he'd be more valuable if he was on the Oakland A's cause he would be batting third. Yeah. That that's that's, that's, that's all about opportunity though, not talent, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it'd um, be a worse park for him, um, actually, right? 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 Like for sure, you know. That's why I was asking the question. A kind of a, a worse situation and a better situation. So it, interesting. Um, talk to me a little bit about Kyle Tucker. What would your expectations on May thirty first? We're going to be talking about Kyle Tucker and looking back at the beginning of the year and saying, oh that silly first three weeks, or are we going to be saying, oh that was the beginning? Um, we should have known better. I I don't really think I've shifted my mental adjustment of Kyle Tucker for any reason, but I think other people have had some wild shifts in assessment on him for different reasons. So there was at first the like, is he going to continue to bat sixth or seventh talk? And then 
for a minute there, it looked like he might be back second, back second, which would really change his value. Like for right. every move up the batting order, you add, I think it's something on the order of like 30 PAs. So like moving up from six to second would be a huge change. Like we're talking like almost a hundred more chances uh, bad over the course of a year. Now, those are a little bit different for a team like Houston, which will actually get a good number of opportunities like per game for its lower in the order guys, relatively speaking. And we should also say this is all kind of Altuve just got hurt. That could change things, I guess, in mind. But like I got some texts from friends who like are Astros fans who are like, hey, why does Nico Goodrum have a spot third in the order today uh, when, <laughs> at one point? And yeah, it's been crazy. So <laughs> I can't say that there's a whole lot that necessarily makes sense on the choices slide. Um, but Tucker is walking 14% of the time this year, which is deserved if you're as talented as him. He is leveraging his ability to figure out what's going on at the plate and drawing more walks. He's struck out 17% of the time so far. But again, these are all small numbers like we're talking about. I'll, I'll pull this. This is going to be funny. Uh, how many walks is that? That is six. That is six walks. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and seven <laughs> strikeouts. Um, yeah. So if that even remotely keeps up, if he can, if he can stay above 10% this year, that'd be really cool for him and stay in the mid to upper teens, I guess, in strikeout rate. He was 16% last year, 17% this year, whatever. Uh, if he stays in those ranges, that'd be cool. Um, the big number I want to note for you guys to not panic about his results, because uh, look, He's batting uh, 114 right now. Is that maybe what drew some of him into this conversation? Yeah, I don't think his results have been very good. But again, very <laughs> small sample size. Yeah, he's got a 10% line drive rate. Um, he's been hitting the ball into the air, but like too far into the air. He hasn't been getting any of those like bloop singles that help inflate your batting average. But to and, your point, line yeah. drive percentage you've talked about many times right is is one of those things that very often regresses to the mean um it's not necessarily a controllable thing so if he's 17 percent am i if i'm remembering what we've talked about before seven 15 to 17 percent below average online drive rate that's some that's a that's actually a good explanation for the outcomes with a a, a prognosis of improvement right also he's been really lucky in terms of people like catching balls into play relatively speaking i should give the caveat here the difference between woba and ex woba would not be as telling as it would be if there has been some ball dejuicement going on that would mean that our understanding of ex woba for balls put into play is assuming a better ball that said this is still a huge gap on a small number of balls in play chances are like, he's hitting the ball hard ish still he's gonna be fine like right now he's got a 450 x woba and a 239 woba he's got yeah. a 304 xba and a 114 x average and that's without line drives like yeah, right right so there's multiple things that should swing back in his favor um the only thing that's not going to swing back in his favor i'd expect is uh dusty baker's uh lineup choices yeah. i think he continues to bat sixth for too long just because i think that that's what dusty's going to choose to do although hitting what what you say 114 makes it a lot harder to push him to the top of that lineup maybe if he if he heats up a little bit that be decision becomes a little bit more difficult let me let's stick with our shtick here would you be more surprised on may 31st if kyle tucker is still struggling or if he is himself <laughs> uh, i'd be I would be shocked if his batting average at the end of May was below 250. There you go. I like that you put a number on it. I, I should have done that. Well done. Um, all right. Let's talk about players who are uh, kind of doing well um, and how we can look under the hood there at those those metrics to understand, is this a flash in the pan? Um, is this a, a true breakout or a performance improvement? Um, and I'm going to ask you to look first at Connor Joe. What's what's going on there? And and is it believable and sustainable? Or is this just like a, a really nice start to the season? So I want to start with a, a, a non-numbers-y thing. Which is that Connor Joe bats right-handed. And with right-handed hitters, you either expect him to play like every single day, maybe get pushed down the lineup, or like be a small side platoon mess of a commodity to roster. Um, Connor Joe has been firmly in the, the good side of things for the Rockies, been playing all the time, batting high in the order, and it's really deserved. Um, he's got a 1.109 OPS as of this morning, 
Uh, he's batting 359. Um, that's good, I would say. Yeah. He's got 47 yep. PAs, I should also note. Yeah, the playing full-time. Remember what I said about Vaughn having 25? Right. Connor Joe's hit about twice as often as he has so far this year. Uh, that's really important. Um, now, the Rockies make a lot of stupid choices. And just playing a lot and having to have a good average is not enough to make someone a good player. And I think that's the thing we're worried about. Um, exceptionally Stephen A. Smith voice, however, though, he's been really excellent in a deserved way. <laughs> and I, I'm i like very convinced that the little bit of Connor Joe we saw last year at age 29, his first full look in the majors, um, was an accurate look at who he is. And all of the Connor Joe's the best Rockies outfielder actually takes seemed like they're true. Uh, striking out less than 20% of the time, walking double digits, that's good. Hitting the ball hard pretty often, that's good. Like, this is the recipe for a sustainable uh, player that I would want to see. Uh, he's done some, like, really weird things in terms of how often he's with the ball. Like, sweet spot slash line drivey being above average as well, which might be inflating some of, like, the average. But, like, if he's, if that's a real skill, that'd be pretty cool, too. If it regresses just a little bit, he's still got a lot of room for regression to still be just fine. Um, I don't think he's going to be, like, a like 30 20 or anything ridiculous don't don't describe too much here but he looks like the sort of guy who's going to reliably rack up a lot of counting stats and that should be in your lineup a lot um going forward based off of what is admittedly like let me let me do some math here um he has over the past two seasons uh 258 pas that's not fun <laughs> but you know it looks like that if you're gonna say something ridiculous like connor joe is the best rockies hitter I wouldn't be shocked at all if at the end of May, that's the consensus. Okay. What would be more surprising to you that Connor Joe on May 31st is um, must roster and it, give me a league size. Let's say 12 team, 12 team. Yeah. Let's or, say like Yahoo 12 ESPN 10, like some pretty standard home league sort of stuff. Okay. So that he is must roster or, not not so much waiver waiver wire i think uh, i'm gonna go extreme on that like either like i want to put some like outfield numbers on there so an espn 10 that's five outfield yahoo 12 that's more teams and more util spots but three outfield so like we're talking like a top 50 outfielder i think it would be far more shocking if he wasn't like basically a core part of their lineup and was like benched for for better or worse, uh, than if he uh, was a top 50 outfielder. I think it's much more likely that he continues to be pretty good uh, because a lot of the things he's doing well seem choice-driven, and it also happens that he's doing some nice things on top of that. Sure, absolutely. Uh, let's do a real quick hit. We talked about this player last week as well, and as has probably everybody in the industry, and deservedly so. Uh, but talk a little bit uh, really, really fast about Quan. Uh, Okay, I have a spicy take and I force this into our outline. My I wouldn't be shocked <laughs> if for Stephen Kwan is I wouldn't be shocked if he doesn't hit a home run by the end of May. Mm, yeah, I, I, I don't I, spicy. Sure. Um, I don't think that it would be all that surprising. He's just not that's not his game, right? He might he might hit eight all year. So if he doesn't hit his first until after May 31st, I, I don't know if that's shocking. I guess the question then becomes if he's if he's really a zero almost in home runs up from now until May 31st, is he good enough at the things he does well to warrant that spot on your team? Um, I'm going to get around to my larger concern on that point here in a second. I, I think the answer has got to be, you got to really need the batting average. Uh, so Stephen Kwan right now um, is not hitting the ball hard very often. Uh, and that's kind of a thing that I would be concerned about for someone of his profile. Um, remember when I said at the very top of me looking at hard contact stuff that I was really shocked to see Nick Madrigal at a 45.7% hard contact rate. That is um, 16 hard hit balls and 35 PAs. Well, our good friend Stephen Kwan also has 37 PAs. True. They both have 37. No, 35 and 37. So same ballpark. Okay. And Quan has four hard hit balls. One of them is a barrel. Um, so he is putting the ball into play often, and it is usually not hit very hard. Um, yeah. 
he knows what he wants to do and he seems like his plan is to try to hit it over the shortstop's head short of the left fielder or whatever i guess he's left-handed so short over the second baseman's head short of the right fielder um i am not sure that's who he's going to be forever but right now that is really concerning that is um like 10 percent hard contact is like do not roster material for me personally that is less yeah. than jorge mateo who is bad at baseball that is less than <laughs> don't let mike curland hear you uh, mike <laughs> hear me out bad uh that is less than elvis andrews who is okay uh, a bunch of other people that is bottom 10 right now uh, he is in the same uh company as aristides aquino victor robles and tyler wade i would be shocked pardon me i would not be shocked if all of them were homerless uh before uh, on may 31st uh just because statistically i don't expect a lot of these wait did I say aristides aquino I was thinking about? someone else, but he is not. He is in that company. That's bad. Uh, that's separate. I was, what was I thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alcides Escobar, who's farther down the list. Okay, he's in the same company as Alcides Escobar. There you go. The, those so the A's names. That's what it is. I want to push back here just a little bit because if he's able to garner a batting average while still having a 10% hard contact rate, is it possible he's just one of those rare guys who can do that? I no, I I, w- I would not be shocked if he's the sort of guy. Here's the other part of it that can sustain over the course of his career. We'll not know this may very first. A line drive rate above thirty percent. That would be unsurprising to me. It got that like Joey Vado ish skill of knows how to put round object on round object at precisely the right combination to put it in the in where you want it. Very few people can do that. I wouldn't be terribly a line drive doesn't necessarily mean hard contact, right? I just want to clarify. Right. That. It's just yes. about the angle. And we think of line drives as those like hit sharply sort of things. Nope. A line drive by a line drive right on Savant includes like some of the flare burner blooper hits that aren't hit very hard, but do get just really launch results. Angle. Yeah. Right. And that's the place that batting average comes from the ability to do those a lot. Um, it's why uh, Joey Callow's batting average, in addition to his strikeout rate, is a bit of a liability. He does not get his power to the right part of the park as often as you want to because he doesn't have the coordination of the bat in a couple different ways. Poor guy. Um, I hope he hits 50 bombs anyway. Um, <laughs> he can hit the ball not that well and get it over the fence. He's got that much power. Yeah. Quan does not. Um, and that's right. That is the, right. that is the, point here that i will check back in on later so we're not super concerned uh, about his ability to actually maintain a solid batting average it's just if it's not elite it's a sacrifice in, in a lot of other categories that you really may or may not be able to to deal with especially in leagues where replacement value is higher so those shallower leagues yeah like that's not even consistently doubles power if he's not hitting those and that'll hurt his rbi totals even if he's batting second which right. means he becomes a runs and average contributor and a sink in enough other categories. He's not going to steal a lot that it's going to be a problem. Right, right. That makes sense. All right. Uh, let's uh, talk about the obligatory uh, closer uh, content that feels like we have to talk about all the time because it's so fluid. Um, and we'll do it underneath kind of this, this guise of like what would be surprising if whatever by May 31st, um, and I'm very interested in what you have to say about this first one, because I think, I, I think there's an answer. Um, and it's actually a very encouraging answer given where we were in the off season, but you're talking about the Cincinnati Reds situation. And you have here that no one has more than two saves in Cincinnati. This is as of Tuesday, the 19th. So if somebody picks up an extra one between now and Friday, when you're hearing this, uh, obviously that's why, cause it's the future for us and the past for you. Um, but what is it that we want to talk about here with the red situation? Actually, I'm going to say that differently. What is it that you want to say about the red situation? Because I have, I have a hunch. Go ahead. Um, the reds are bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Very, go very clearly stated. Yeah. Uh, so is this about opportunity or is this about, or I should say lack of opportunity for the people who are there, or is this about not, not really having somebody who has that role? It's all the above. Um, I'm being a little bit melodramatic here. Two is probably a too low of a bar, but like four maybe is like an actual realistic number. Uh, Tony Tony Santillan, uh, 
Santillan, Santillan's probably how you should say that. I should look that up. Has one. Art Warren has one. Both of them are probably good pitchers. Uh, Lucas mm-hmm. Sims is a good pitcher. Is on the IL should, should come back. Um, I'm just worried they're not going to generate more than like a handful of safe opportunities because they are just really dreadful. And yeah, it's it's going to be a big problem. Um, so can I ask this question? And then I'm going to tell you what what uh, what I was thinking about this. You obviously have to win games to be able to get saves. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> Does a team that isn't producing that many runs become more likely to win the games they're going to win by a small enough margin to to make up the difference versus a team that is going to win more games, but like the Yankees are going to win a bunch of games by 10 and those aren't save opportunities either? So the answer is bad teams do generate save opportunities. You're right. Uh, it's the makeup of this bad team that's got me a little worried, which is they've got a lot of not good pitchers elsewhere on the team. And they've got a park that's going to generate office for the other team. I think they could lose a good number of games like by a lot. And a lot of their wins then like, is it going to, I think those could be on the couple days where people really go off against other teams. I'm worried then that they end up having too many four run wins among their wins where like the other team's pitcher just has a bad day. Um, Their two wins so far. By the way, they beat Atlanta 63. They beat Atlanta 63. Those both turns into saves. Um, they've they have some really nasty losses in the in the time sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, end of May, we're looking at how many save opportunities then? Let's say that they win 30% of their games. They have a save opportunity in 20% of those games. 20% of their games. So 20% of the games is a save opportunity. How many games we got? Uh, let's call that like 40 games. So that's eight save opportunities. Yeah, if um, if Sims and everyone else divide those equally, it's really possible that no one has more than three or four. Uh, two is being melodramatic. That's too low. <laughs> I, I, I should have changed that number. But yeah, like less than I five. You just I went that so one. far. I yeah. thought that when you put that in the notes, I thought you meant to this point. Oh, no, um, I'm through the next so, month. By the, over the next month. Well, here's my thought on that, and, and you can tell me that I'm being stupid, but um, and maybe it's lack of opportunity. But going into the season, um, there was kind of this, like, who's going to be the, the closer in Cincinnati? And then Sims got hurt. And this maybe suggests to me that Sims is the guy, and they're just waiting for him to be able to come back and do it. Uh, but that doesn't change what you're talking about in terms of, well, how many real opportunities, even if he is the bona fide closer, how many real save opportunities is he even going to get? I, I also should note that they like they kind of like to have a guy, but last season they didn't. Uh, and or it would change a lot because they were kind of like uh, fickle once they anointed someone the closer and then they were bad for a minute. Um, right that that's a problem like you can say you want a closer and then just not act that way sometimes um and you know that park is going to lead to some opportunities for overreacting um sure i will say yeah absolutely all right i want to move into our off the book segment we have not uh honored this segment in a while and uh, i have something that i want to bring up to you um it to my mind this kind of plays into some of the discussions we've had about like is bunting good or bad and and how we've kind of solidified the idea that most of the time, if not all the time, bunting is, is a net negative overall um, or isn't the play, or at least if you compare it to what the alternative is, uh, even when it's successful, it's a very small increase, all of those things that we've talked about. Um, and I want to talk about intentional walks because I feel like it's, it's sort of similar. And there was a case recently where there was an intentional walk with the bases loaded which uh, seems on its face to be kind of the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish in a baseball game. Um, So let's talk a little bit about what the math says about intentional walks. Um, So yeah, this was the Corey Seager being intentionally walked by the angels with the bases loaded moment. Um, If, if you say it's on its face, kind of weird, it was also on Mike's Mike Trout's face a little bit weird. There's a great, (laughs) uh, there's a great, uh, video of him just like being like confused while he counts the number of like runners on base and being like hey what's going on here um yeah right which 
fair. All of us are kind of there. Um, I should also note before we get too far, because it's the funniest number of all this. Do you do you know what the record of teams who have intentionally walked with someone with the bases loaded is in the past, like, ever since we've been so tracking the, it? The number of times a team has done it in a season. No, no. Do you know what the win loss record of teams that have chosen to do it is? Oh, oh, I'm gonna guess it's not good. They're um, undefeated with seven wins. Really it's so stupid. Okay, well, it's, yeah, yeah. We it, it, it has happened I'm also, to have worked. I'm, I'm undefeated in getting questions that you ask me. Right, I, 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 I'm only defeated, I should say. Um, so it, so it's worked. So okay, so what does the math say? Is the, is the math saying like this is pure genius, and it's one of those things that flies in the face of like we're trying to keep that other team from scoring runs, but we're going to give them a run right now. Um. Or is this just coincidence? It's hard for me to kind of wrap my head around this. Let's talk about this situation. Let's talk about the bases loaded because that's what we're on. And then let's segue into just intentional walks in general because putting runners on base, I have to imagine mathematically increases run potential for the Mm -hmm. other team. Um, But there's got to be a a counter argument in terms of like, well, but the batter who gets walked is more likely to put the ball in play and all of that. That's that's the balance, right? So basically the math that you're mentally doing there is which is worse giving a team a run and changing the batter from Corey Seager to someone else or letting Corey Seager hit. So is Corey Seager a full run on average better than the person behind him? Because notably if you walk someone with the base, if the bases are loaded and you're say up by three you're worried about giving up a grand slam right well if yeah. you walk someone with the bases loaded a double now uh gives up the lead so you right. have to think that the odds of the person at bat hitting a home run are higher than the, the odds of the next person at bat hitting anything better than a single that's right. basically like the rough math there. Like you assume that on a double, the runner scores from first. Maybe you got pull holes there, et cetera, et cetera. But even then you don't want to walk because instead of poo holes, well, actually, pardon me. Let's change that. Let's say poo holes is at bat. You get a lefty on the hill. You can't change the pitcher. And you're like, okay, he actually could hit a home run. But if we intentionally walk him, he's really slow and he'll be on first. I'm using him because he just comes to mind because he's really slow and I made the situation <laughs> work for him, whatever. But like, that's basically the situation you have to imagine. Pujols is in the game. The guy behind him is really bad, has no power, and you're up exactly three runs, uh, and you have like none out or something like that, like one out, and you're like a double play won't help me or something like that. Like even then, like that's the that's the situation you imagine for yourself, right? Sure. Well, the nice thing is, our friends at Fangraphs, Ben Clemens wrote this nice piece, um, detailing a lot of that actual work uh there's some other people who have like like he wrote it up in really nice and like easy to read form i really suggest it uh but like i've seen some other people i think uh i think baseball prospectus did it um I, someone else has done it as well that basically says oh no i know where i saw this i know where i saw this tom tango pulled this for whenever he was like working with a team in early 2000s and there was like a bonds chart should you walk a guy in a certain case and like he showed it on his twitter like when should you do it and basically the answer is like never never ever 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 should you walk someone with the bases loaded it is always because of that thing we said about homers and doubles a stupid idea so um Except the teams are seven and oh when they've done it yeah isn't 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 math fun <laughs> um stupid teams win some games sometimes i love it as a quirk that remember they're, they're all winning though right like it's a bad idea because it reduces your chance of winning but they were all winning the game when they did it yeah so let's say if their if their win outcome going into that inning was 80 percent Mm-hmm. and they reduce it down to 68% by doing this, they still have a higher likelihood of, of winning the game. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So you can explain the quirk of everything there. So it's more like getting it's away so with doing something dumb, but <laughs> yeah. But is it dumb if it works every time? I don't know. It's <laughs> 60% of the time, it works every time. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about uh, just intentional walks in general? Uh, are they, is there, is there math to support it being the right idea or at the very least bring us through the logic like you did with the bases loaded. So there's a guy on second and a thumper up 
we're going to walk him because that increases, I would assume, the out potential of of a batted ball by the next player, right? That, that's right. kind of yeah. where we're at. Intentionally walking uh, a batter whenever a first base is open and there's a runner on second, uh, I think is a reasonable idea. It's the obvious thing to do, by the way, if you're in the bottom of the ninth and you have one out and you are leading by one. You should almost always be willing to intentionally walk in some of those cases, uh, unless like the person that you would be bringing up will be better. Uh, there were some interesting ways that we got to see that expressed um, whenever uh, teams first started experimenting with the runner on second in the extras rule. I remember uh, the Astros being in some situations where um, they had like Bregman and Altuve or Bregman and someone else up as like the two batters and they chose to uh, attack Altuve and then intentionally walk Bregman second once they had an out. Yeah, uh, I was just going to ask that question. So intentionally walking the first batter is probably not great because now you've got two on and no, nobody out, right? But once you have that out, now you're increasing the opportunity for a double play to get you out of the inning. It, well, it's the thing is, if you're if the, if the ball game's tied, um, it doesn't matter. The, the runner on second scores, the game's over regardless. It's just a matter of who do you think you're more likely to get out the first only the if it's batter. the top, only only if the home team is hitting, though. Right. So that's right. All... And that's the case that was happening in these cases in that particular yeah game. OK, so, yeah, it's it's fascinating to me. All of these different things. I always kind of thought of of bunting before we talked about it as, you know, that's a smart move. You get that guy into scoring position and, and you need that run. Um, it, it's an improvement. It's a smart move. And then you look at what the math says about the potential outcomes and the likelihood and all of that. And turns out that's not the case. So I thought that uh, bringing up, especially in light of this particular situation and the look on Mike Trout's face, it would be a fun thing to, to explore and discuss. Yeah. There's a fun thing that happens in baseball in that like outside of the couple of weird things where someone's been intentionally locked with the bases loaded, we actually have just an insane amount of data about like every other situation that's happened. We know how many runs you should expect if you have a runner on second and nobody out or a runner on first and second and nobody out or, you know, make the contrived situation with bunting. However you want to build it. We know how many runs you'd expect to give up and we know what the odds of the runner scoring are. You can adjust those slightly based off of who's pitching and batting. Teams have that data. Smart teams are making a, like, here's what we'd expect thing. And in a lot of those ranges, it's a go with your gut situation once you get down to, like, they're both the same thing. A good manager's gut is based off of knowing their player's confidence and being able to manage all of the intangibles. And, like, there is definitely statistical room for that sort of stuff. You want to make sure well, that you don't go stats with your aren't gut. giving you a 100% outcome, right? And even if it's a even if it's the humanity that lives in a 10%, it's still a chance. Right. Uh, that's you, why things that are supposed to happen don't always happen. Right. You want to make sure your manager is not choosing to go with his gut when it's an obviously wrong choice where it's like, no, like this is going to fail 90% of the time, don't do it. But if we're like in the 40 to 60 range with error bars, I hope you can trust who's down there. I hope yeah, that the yeah, person yeah, in the yeah, dugout right. is someone you believe in. Now you don't you don't really want somebody who's going to make on the macro, I would imagine, over the course of a year, even if it's 60-40, if they're constantly going against the math, they're making that more 50-50, right? By the choices that they're making, they're changing the the uh, calculus there. Um so it's I don't know. I think that's it's very interesting to me and very fascinating for somebody whose brain doesn't work around numbers the way that that yours does. Um, that's the sort of thing where, like, we talk about these these probable probability outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that's about to happen in this moment doesn't care about your math. It's going <laughs> to be either this or that, right? It, right. It's, it's just it's also probably never going to happen again and has never happened before there's been an infinite number of bases loaded situations, but there has never been the bases loaded on uh, April 22nd with uh, yeah, the wind you know, blowing one way, the shadows, that, the yeah. batter hitters, you know, the, how did they play extra innings last night? Oh, there's the idea there being that there are so many variables in the course of a baseball game and comparing one situation to the next that that gives you enough wiggle room to be able to say, well, in this situation, I think that this is this is the move. 
Um, fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you, uh, as always, Alexander, for being a part of this and, and joining me on this podcast. And if you could just remind the people where they can find us. Well, they can find you on Twitter at the corked mat. I'm on Twitter at chase underscore rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at Dugout Study Hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure to subscribe to the Pitcherless podcast feed if you haven't done that already. Leave us a good review if you can be so kind. And if you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time.